Welcome at the Growcast, the podcast of Blue City and Blue City Lab, in which we talk with eight Rotterdam-based pioneering biodesigners, our so-called pioneers, about how a future will look like if we design with nature as our guideline. We started this podcast to celebrate the opening of Blue City Lab, a biocircular playground for pioneers located in the heart of Blue City. We invited four frontrunners whose work will make us rethink everything we think we know and four aspiring biodesigners who want to challenge the status quo. My name is Barbara Vos. And I'm Emma van der Leest. In this podcast, we want to welcome Nico Bouchard, a biohacker originally from the States, and he volunteered in one of America's first community biolabs. Last year, he moved to Rotterdam and he studies at the Willem de Koning Academy and uses Blue City Lab to test his concepts. So, welcome, Nico. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. What's a biohacker? Ooh. <laughs> well, biohacker has like a weird kind of association to it, right? Because um, a lot of people think that we're like the, the cyber hackers from the 90s, which isn't really a clear illustration. And a lot of like the media projections don't really show it clearly either with like the new uh, Netflix series that came out. A, a lot of what biohackers are is people who came from university or institutional settings and they had their projects at school, but they're workaholics. And so they built labs at home and they just kind of carried their experiments in their off hours as well. Um, but what's kind of come from that is there's this huge active community now of uh, people who have um, scientific backgrounds, <clears throat> like proper hardcore academic uh, credentialing, and then uh, coming into these community spaces where they share knowledge and expertise and they lend their hands uh, to people from diverse backgrounds to kind of get introduced into the sciences, uh, teach people what are the basic things you need to understand the scientific aspect of your experimental design. Um, and it's kind of become an enabling uh, creative zone for tremendous amounts of cross-pollination across scientific disciplines, but also the arts. How did this crisis affect you? Yeah, um, I mean, the first few weeks were definitely rough, not knowing what was going on. But um, I, I feel my, I was really fortunate, actually, because uh, right before COVID happened, I, I got this, uh, this huge wave of inspiration. So I just started on some personal projects. And um, I actually, uh, after the first few weeks, I, I like regained so much of my personal focus. And that's translated into some uh, consulting opportunities and some other projects that I'll talk about later. Um, and it's actually quite amazing because to me it was this, uh, it might sound a little California, uh, but I found it was like a tremendous opportunity because for my entire life, it feels like the dialogue with the natural world has been one where we as a species just kind of tell nature what we're doing. Um, and for the first time, like, we heard an echo back that was so loud that the entire planet stopped operations for three months. And so that was a really awesome opportunity for reflection for me personally as to how we interact with the natural world because we're creating all these problems and now we're kind of forced into a dialogue again, which is an exciting opportunity for me. But you're also studying yeah. still. Yeah. So I can also imagine that it, that, that part was a bit different and that you maybe lack, were in lack of certain machines or... Yeah, totally. Um, I, I, I chose uh, over the summer to actually just work full time uh, at a startup just so I could actually solve some of those problems. Like we don't have access to the machines like we, we used to for sure. I've been able to take that opportunity to uh, kind of buy my own 3D printer or a little laser cutter at home so I can start prototyping and doing my schoolwork because yeah, totally. Uh, COVID has kind of made it really difficult for 
students to have access to all of the materials we're used to. So I was really fortunate actually to have the opportunity to just kind of start creating that for myself. If we um, go back um, to the start, how did you find out about biodesign? Yeah, um, well, biodesign was for me, I mean, moving to a new culture, a new country, I was like, okay, I operate in this world of biotechnology and artists and startups and these are the, I was just kind of looking for my loose parameters and in the Netherlands biodesign is the community for people who are interested in, in biology um, but also interested not just in the the, the analytical side but also uh, the creative side as well it's like a the yeah it's, it's, it, to me it's like the, the cultural permutation of what biohacking was but just applied to Europe because of the, the cultural lenses here could you name one favorite example of a, a biodesign project Ooh. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's. I wouldn't necessarily say it's. It's entirely biodesign because the school then started creating their own monikers around it at uh, the Bartlett School of Architecture. Um, but it, uh, and and then Lars van Vienen also kind of touches on it in his work. Lars van Vienen. Yeah, 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 he he touches Escape, on escape uh, agency. Exactly, he touches on the, the work as well. Um, and it was out of Richard Beckett's lab. Richard Beckett's lab. He created these concrete facades that are bioreceptive, and and Lars has been doing similar work and through the podcast, I, I got to yeah. meet him and talk to him and super cool work, I love that. <laughs> and how did you uh, uh, get here at Blue City Lab? How did you find out about it? Uh, through through my network from the, the startup community. Um, I mean, years ago I went through uh, SOSV's uh, Biotech Accelerator program and uh, so through that I, I know quite a bit of the uh, community around the Vach Society. And as soon as I landed, I was like, hey, where, sh where should I go and kind of explore? And they're like, oh, check out Blue City. Yeah. Because you're in Rotterdam now. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But but also in general, they're just kind of like, if you're in the Netherlands, like, check out Blue City, check out the Vach. It's just kind of one of the spots. Well, that's good yeah. to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, you get your inspiration from nature. Um, which aspect of nature inspires you and why? Or if you have multiple? Yeah, there's, there's two big ones. Um, <laughs> one... Uh, in a healthy ecosystem, there are like more uh, connections even between species than there are neurons in the human brain. Uh, so to me, <laughs> so to me, like uh, just the fact that anything a human has thought of, right? We're just like pattern recognition machines after all, and for some reason we have this construct where we don't see that we actually took our patterns that we're applying to technologies from nature. Um, but if we've come up with anything, it's actually probably from nature. And if there's any design problem, uh, you can look at nature and it's been solved because that's kind of my second point. Like Mother Nature is like the egoless designer, inventor, creator, physicist, mathematician. Um, she just creates and uh, will create every single permutation, iteration thereof, create like hundreds of multiple variations thereof without being asked, without needing any sort of incentive. And she's, if there's a possibility for something to be created with what is available, nature does it. So can you tell us a little more about what it is that you do exactly? Uh, yeah, so right now I have uh, a few active projects. Um, one is um, focused on uh, developing uh, IoT sensor "Quote unquote satellites." Sorry, uh, what is IoT? Yeah, yeah. What oh, is IoT for the listeners who don't know? Yeah, uh, Internet of Things. So uh, imagine uh, there are these uh, little boxes that you can scatter around uh, a neighborhood, for instance, and these boxes have sensors in them that will measure, for the time being, uh, air quality, 
And uh, what I'm, I'm collaborating with a, a few people, um, programmers and, and engineers, um, and we're taking that data and we're creating some sort of creative uh, system to be like, okay, here are the data points and here's what it means for human health. Uh, and then we put that into a bit of a program and then I have built uh, these analog uh, kinetic sculptures, um, and they're me kind of researching how you can use uh, kinetic facades to visualize ecosystem health data in a way that, uh, like for people who don't like looking at graphs like me, like I wake up in the morning and I type <laughs> in ASRE Nederland and I'm like, okay, what are the COVID numbers? I know people aren't like me. <laughs> they don't like looking at graphs, so it's kind of an exploration in how to communicate those really complex uh, data points. The facades and the data you have right now about... Uh, yeah. How do you visualize that, uh, not in a graph, do you also work on a, a physical object? So for example, for the neighborhood to see what is happening. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's currently a prototype. Um, I mean, it's still in its motor and broken apart pieces form, but it's a, a tower um, that's kind of like six layers high, and each of the layers is controlled by a, a rotating motor. And um, what happens is like there's this solid form that you see Um, and as it uh, as the air quality gets worse, the the slices are like delayed or offset. So as it's rotating back and forth, there's a delay between the motor and the visual uh, depiction of the sculpture is distorted. So I'm calling it glitch because it's like visualizing a glitch in the ecosystem. If the air if the conditions are bad, you get this glitchy image. If they're good, you can see what the image is. And that's a scale model, or do you have it in your house, for example? Uh, I have one. I'm, I'm building one in my house. It's about a yeah, 50 centimeters tall. Okay. I've been working on an antiviral face mask project uh, with uh, one of my collaborators from the startup. Um, last week, we just started discussions with uh, TNO <clears throat> to start uh, being able to test the viricidal claim. So uh, throughout also the summer, I did a lot of uh, testing, uh, a lot of prototyping with masks to test essentially the solution that we concocted uh, that is has indications that we found that it kills SARS-1. Um, and so we developed uh, a very simple biodegradable mask concept, um, tested out various concentrations, like more bunches of them kind of saw uh, how comfortable it was. Would this be safe for the average person? If somebody who's not kind of interested in science be comfortable with something like this? And now we're, we're taking it to the next stage to be to get the, the third-party validation that, yes, this kills uh, viruses, not coronavirus, because that test costs 100,000 euro. But you can do it with uh, less uh, exotic or dangerous viruses. Um, and so we're in, now in the process of finding partners, and hopefully TNO can help us with that. So you're inspired by nature, but you work with technology. How do you combine these two worlds? Well, nature is technology. And I, I think like in a lot of ways, like we don't really look at it that way, but like, I mean, if you look at a, a healthy rainforest, there's probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of potential uh, like bi biomolecules or some sort of pharmaceutical, like that's there. Like everything that we use as humans comes actually from the natural world, like our drugs, our medicines, our food, um, the products that we use are, you know, mainly the derivative of broken down dinosaur bones. Um, and so uh, to me, there isn't a, really a differentiation between technology and nature. It's just kind of confronting the fact that technology is nature and to look at the tools she provides uh, to be able to solve the problems that we've kind of caused for ourselves.
So, Nico, you are originally from the States, moved here to the Netherlands uh, from the Bay Area. Could you tell us a bit more about the focus and link between uh, the differences in the US and the Netherlands on a topic of, of biodesign? Do you see, or here in Europe, do you see a big difference? How do you look at it? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's just, first and foremost, there's like the cultural difference, right? <laughs> um, And, um, you can be honest. Yeah, I mean, in the States, it's the wild, wild west, right? I mean, like, biohacking isn't regulated, like, biology isn't regulated in the States like it is here. Um, I had a, a lab in my room. I could make GMOs in my room, no problem. Uh, the regulations come in at the commercialization side of things. So if I want to have a product, I want to sell it, then uh, a GMO would be regulated as a drug or a GMO or something like that. And that's where, where those regulations would come into play. Um, so I, on, on that level, like, in the States, we, we're enabled to just play around with the technologies. It's just when we want to do something and monetize it in the States that we need to start being careful. Yeah, because America and China are working on also things like CRISPR-Cas, so the, the scissors that can cut in DNA, right? And uh, That's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I know that Europe is working on, on the ethical part because mm. we are not allowed to work on those technologies. Yeah. yeah. Why is it dangerous? Um... Yeah, I I mean it's it's dangerous if you if you start doing like a hardcore edits like to the germline, right? If you start making permanent changes in organisms. Um uh yeah, uh, there's uh, the, the the clear example that comes to mind is Oxitex a mosquito release project. Um they they released some in Brazil a few years ago. They had a project in Florida. I've heard about that um, one, yeah. It didn't work, if I remember correctly. I, I haven't read it in the, the articles in a while, but it, 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 there, there were issues. Like it, it didn't work the way they wanted to. Um, and I think what is the scary bit is we actually don't fully understand how it works, um, how the technologies work, where all the edits are. Um, but also, it's really hard um, to like keep your genes uh, in an organism if you're trying to put them in there from like a foreign source. Like you kind of constantly have to select for the genes. Uh, And that actually is quite a challenge. And a lot of molecular biologists and microbiologists, they just, like, there's memes of, like, why are my, trans my colonies not transformed? Just like PhDs have this problem all the time. It's actually really, really challenging. Uh, so to me, actually, a lot of the fears come from uh, the speculation is how it's going to be applied in the real world, in the marketplace. And it's not really tied to the research. And there's this huge actual cognitive barrier between understanding the science and what's actually possible now how we decide as a culture and a society to use those tools is the scary bit for me. The two founders of CRISPR-Cas, this technology, recently won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. How do you think that will, um, what that means for, for the, this technology? Because a lot of people are afraid of it, but yeah. it can also give us a lot of opportunities to grow foods in places where we can't grow it now, for example, but also for to extinct Uh, certain diseases, or maybe to create beautiful materials. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is like, uh, and I, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable really, but like the whole thing with the Luddites and uh, the Industrial Revolution, because um, like at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, you know, everything started changing very quickly for a lot of people. Uh, labor practices changed, manufacturing changed. You know, I've I've been seeing articles coming out more that. Uh, you know, if the 21st or if the 20th century was the industrial revolution, uh, the 21st is going to be the ecological revolution. And so, uh, you know, kind of having a uh, 
having a technology like CRISPR kind of put at the forefront of that and was like, hey, here's the dawn of the ecological revolution. Here's this major tool that allows us to make edits across kingdoms, like evolutionarily speaking. Uh, that to me is kind of like a, cool, it started. <laughs> we're here. Yeah. Well, we were talking about the US, of course, and that's also where the term biohacking was being coined, uh, as well as the concept of do-it-yourself biology. Um, actually, it was coined in, already in 1988, I found out. And back in 2005, Wired, the magazine and website, produced an article called The Era of Garage Biology is Upon Us, Want to Participate?, and in the same year, I know the, the first, let's say, Garage Lab opened, uh, and five years later also Biocurious opened, where you uh, have been working as a volunteer. You're really acti actively involved in these communities. Um, what can we learn here in the Netherlands, or especially, for example, Blue City Lab here in the Netherlands, and vice versa about, about the values of having those garage community labs? I started as, um, I mean, in high school I was a nerd, but I, once I left uh, school, I went directly into the arts. Um, I was a painter from painting. I became a stage designer for festivals like Burning Man. Uh, from there, I went to teaching after-school robotics and engineering kids, classes to kids using Legos. Super fun. Uh, then was a teacher at some other schools. Uh, uh, and then I uh, actually through this practice called permaculture. Uh, it's an alternative uh, form of agriculture. Um, I found out about this practice called phytoremediation, um, <clears throat> which is essentially using plants and living systems to clean up the environment. Um, and then through that, I started getting into wanting to understand more about how to make it more efficient, right? Because plants are like low tens, maybe 7%, like single digit number uh, efficiency rates. Whereas if you make a GMO, you can get up to like 50 to 60% efficiency rate, which is getting more towards an industrial scale. So it's, it's, it's applicable as a technology. Um, and so my, my interests kind of naturally carried me from artistic, how do we do the best from the, for the world to the technical, how do we execute? Um, and in the Bay Area, what really enabled that is I mean, you, it's such a diverse community. Um, I mean, for instance, there are places like uh, BioCurious. There's also counterculture labs, uh, many labs, um, and uh, Berkeley Bio Labs that were all doing similar things, just either... GenSpace in New York. GenSpace in New York, exactly. I was just talking the California local <laughs> <Yeah>. ones. <laughs> the, I think the, the big thing is, is one, you can just walk in. like in this, in, Because of the biohacker community, because of this... Uh, ecosystem that unfortunately was influenced by move th fast and break things. Um, you, there's just like this open collaborative spirit, right? Where the the traditional uh, ideology of the scientist who is academically credentialed, wearing the lab coat, is the only one that has access to the key card to go into the lab. That's totally been challenged. Um, like I think in the states, we're fortunate. But also, I mean, now Limited. realizing how unfortunate it is. Um, but we didn't. We don't really have culture, right? And so we didn't have anything pushing back against this sort of stuff because our culture was just go to the new frontier and pioneering and pioneer or gold rush or whatever the next like high value market potential thing is. Just go do it now. That's yeah. the, that's the culture. <laughs> and Opportunities, right? Yeah. E exactly. And so. Um, you know, every 
everybody's in this uh, this atmosphere or, or a state of mind to kind of foster that and uh, enable cross pollination. Like me being a scientist or an artist and a teacher, being like, hey. Uh, I, I literally walked up to PhDs at, uh, at BioCurious, and I was like, hey, I don't know anything about this. I want to make transgenic phytoremediative plants. Uh, what do I need to learn? And they're like, cool, read this stuff. Get back to us. Give us an actual question. I was like, cool, I read this stuff. Here are my questions. And they're like, cool, when can you come in? And I was like, cool, uh, I can give you three days a week. They're like, cool, you're going to do all of our grunt work. I think this is also a tip for our listeners who want to get involved in communities like this read, do, communicate, don't be afraid, right? Yeah, totally. Of course, the, the, the length of opportunities, it, it triggers and it sounds, okay, everything is possible, but we're talking about genetic modification here. So the ethical part is like really important. We are not God, so we can't, can't endlessly modify um, uh, nature around us. So I'm really now looking for you saying, okay, but what's the downside of that story, of the opportunities? Um. Yeah, um, I mean, my, my honest answer is, I mean, society still kind of operates under the uh, the principles of manifest destiny. Like, we just don't really like to talk about it. So, like, we we pretend to be God with everything else, but when it applies to genetics, <laughs> we we change the story a little bit um, because, I mean, we still clear cut, we still monocrop, we still. Uh, I mean, we, every, anywhere humans live, we pave and kill the ground, right? Any square of inch of soil has 40,000 different species of bacteria living in it if it's healthy. Mm. Like, we, we commit genocides on a daily basis. It's just to other organisms, you know? So, like, that whole uh, we're not God argument to me is, like, it's, it's kind of sad because we presume we are in every other activity we, we, we operate under, like, whether it's oil, um, our, our free markets now the way we're treating humans right like we operate as if we own everything or the people with money own everything in, in america we there's this like level of desperation right where we haven't been able to really think about sorry <laughs> think about those sorts of um those problems because there's uh there's there's not really the climate or the the space to fully have those conversations. I will stop being political after this one because it <laughs> yeah, it, it has brought the states a lot, you know, like yeah. the pioneering and let's go and let's do this. But now you see the big turnaround, like the states. We in Europe, it's not our example country anymore. It's it's yeah. we are really scared actually of what's happening over there. It's the failure of democracy. It's um, the land of opportunities where. So many people are poor. There's no healthcare. Uh, it's uh, it's scary what's happening. It's it's we're actually seeing the downside of yeah. of of uh, what what can happen if you if there are no restrictions. Yeah, um, I mean, I think with also like the current climate in the states, like it's it. We need to be really careful. Um, because what is, I think, also the, the mega downfall and what's created the social collapse that we're seeing now is uh, uh, because of the, uh, the corruption of our com ability to communicate with each other. You know? The corruption of power as well. The corruption of power? Well, the, 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 corruption, the, the ability to communicate, like the echo chambers of the entire world and mainly America have been co-opted by for-profit interests. So you can literally... Like, I mean, I, I used to do marketing for my startup, right? I, I could literally target whoever I wanted and I could, I could you know, tw tweak different dials and be like, okay, how can I get you this closer to buying my product? 
and how can I, you know, like that, that was what I did when I had this uh, STD uh, company is like uh, to, to prove market uh, fit. Uh, we just essentially did marketing campaigns to be like, who's going to be able to do this? What's the right price point? We test all of it through marketing. And what I learned through that is really that like with these tools, you have the ability to just pinpoint who you want and learn to throttle them to the point of what you want, right? And so when it applies to biotechnology, uh, like it's in the same culture, but it's also, I think we need to be really careful that I don't think America, what it's going through is because of the spirit of innovation. I think it's because uh, there was nobody who was loud enough and aware of the problem at the time to be, hey, we need to make sure that we're protecting larger yeah. aspects of our society. Do you believe your work brings change, positive change? Um, I hope so, honestly. I mean, I, I want to, uh, you know, develop products for nature, but also like for humanity in a way that like allows us to kind of have more of a, a collaboration. Um, but at, at this point, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm very much still like in terms of uh, the design work I do, like kind of exploring that. Like I really uh, am passionate about taking like what are the hardcore technical things and translating it into ways that uh, non-science literate people can understand um, because that to me is, that's like, that's one of the, the, the big frontiers that we need to kind of work through I feel like in these times, especially with Corona and climate change and all of these science heavy problems. We need people who can effectively communicate things to, to the lay public. Well, they can't help it, you know. Exactly, and I, I think that's the, the scariest part of like these times is like, uh, and one of, the, one of the big like political challenges as well is like, how do you effectively communicate these problems in a way that like the, the normal person will make action and, and feel the need, right? Because yep. it's so abstract. You're talking yeah. about aerosols floating through the air. You see these weird simulations of dots landing on surfaces, and you're like... What challenge do you see here in Rotterdam that you would love to tackle with rolled-up sleeves like you have now? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I mean, directly, I'm not quite sure what my role will be in, in that regard yet. I mean, I, I have a lot of, um, you know, experience from what helped create the bay in, or I, I was lucky enough to be in the bay at the right place at the right time to know what all the things are necessary to kind of make things come together for that. Um, but, but since uh, the podcast series, I've been talking to various people in the startup bio uh, design kind of oriented spheres. Um, and and it, there's a loose discussion about starting to develop um, like tools for bio mm -hmm. designers um, because, you know, we have this, uh, if we're coming from a technical background, we have this privilege of having technical knowledge. Um, but also, as a bio designer, if you don't, uh, I mean, I, I remember such a huge uh, intimidation thing to overcome when I first got into science because I was like, I am pouring magical science goo into a petri dish. What is happening? <laughs> this is really intimidating. Um, and so that's that's a real emotional barrier that needs to be, I think, overcome for people coming in to something that touches uh, the sciences. Um, so, so one, I think there needs to be an understanding and a willingness on people who are coming into it that there's going to be an emotional barrier that's mm -hmm. probably going to need to be crossed. Um, but also we can come in from the technical side and kind of help provide tools, lessons, uh, protocols, uh, to help kind of create a, a social, emotional, and learning environment that just fosters play and fun, right? Because at the end of the day, nothing innovative, innovative happens if you're stressed out. Yeah. So if you get as many people who are part of the conversation, you get scientists, lawmakers, policymakers, engineers, uh, artists, designers, uh, poets, uh, 
fashion designers, everybody invite invite every single aspect of like the individual aspect of human cognition that has kind of found some place in the world. Nico, if you can pick one favorite uh, between brackets, bio or designer, architect, scientist, uh, you name it, to collaborate with, who would that be? Mm. I think my dream project would be a combination or working with a, a team of Patrick Schumacher, Neri Oxman, and Michael Levin of the Levin Lab at Tufts University. Um, one of my big dreams, if I could ever accomplish it, is make something that is akin to home tree or like a, a metabolizing piece of architecture that's fully alive. Um, so Patrick Schumacher is like the, uh, the parametricism dude. Uh, Neri Oxman is architecture with design and starting to incorporate metabolic elements. Uh, and then Levin is, uh, he's, he's He's researching the molecular control switches for morphology or the architecture of organisms. Uh, and I think if you, you got all those people into a room, it would be so cool. Like uh, imagine living, breathing architecture. <laughs> That'd be amazing. That would be amazing. So thank you so much for being here with us uh, today, Nico. Yeah, thank you. And we wish you all the luck. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. This Growcast was hosted by Barbara Vos and Emma van der Leest and produced by Blue City Lab. This podcast was realized with funding from the Municipality of Rotterdam and Creative Industries Fund NL and was edited by Puree Productions. We also want to give a shout out to Nienke Binnendijk, director of Blue City Lab, and Sabine Biesheuvel, director of Blue City, and actually everyone else from the Blue City team for their trust and never-ending support. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>